The Professor and The Hack. What a time it has been. I am Hugh Rimmington. I'm The Hack. The Professor is PVO. G'day, Hugh. How are you? All right, thanks. I'm okay. This is episode 13, by the way. If you've been following, thank you, if you have been. So much has happened since we last talked. How good is Australia? How good is Australia? How good is a police raid (laughs) on the media? That worked a treat. Not as your anarchist matters. I tell you what, it would be pretty disconcerting, wouldn't it? I mean, we'll talk about the bigger picture issues, but just at that personal level for her, uh, we're not just talking about having your office raided, uh, some of the descriptions, you know, your house, seven hours. I don't understand why when these things happen. I thought this was just in the movies, but it looks like it's also in real life. Why do they feel the need when they go through all your stuff to leave it a mess afterwards? I would have thought that there's some requirement that if you're going to be getting a warrant, unless you are somehow necessarily really in, in the doldrums, Shouldn't they at least leave the place the way that they found it? I would have thought that should be in the law. Yeah, it would never work. My my wife is particularly finicky about how things get folded up again. And you just see here, they've come down, they've raided the house, and then they're following your instruction there, Peter, and they're they're saying, well, we're supposed to put it back as we found it. Well, shouldn't they at least have to pay for it? And she's going, no, no, you've got to triple fold that one there, and you've got to put it there next to, no, no, a couple of those colours together, it's not going to work. I, but but how unfair is it that one day somebody could turn up to my neatly ordered house? and just ransack the joint. It's the equivalent of getting broken into, only nothing got stolen. Well, that's true. Bear in mind that in the police... Unless they found something they wanted, I suppose, then that got stolen because that's what the warrant's all about. Well, in the police mind, Annika Smethurst is potentially guilty of a criminal charge which could carry a jail term of handling secrets. I think this is the real abuse. Uh, You know, you can take your knickers being spread around a little bit, one presumes, but the larger... Uh, intrusion is into the is into your potential liberty, and this is where we go to the well, heart well, of the get, issue. Absolutely, I mean, let's not forget if that is the police attitude, and, and if this is something that is more in their hands. Before we get to the big issue of how they leave the place, they they need to be reminded that everyone's innocent until proven guilty. So the fact that she's even getting a warrant, I, I, look, I I know that there's bigger issues, but I just find it extraordinary the way that people's houses just get turfed like that and that there's not some sort of requirement that things get sorted thereafter. But you're right, Hugh, the bigger issue is the fact that they're even doing this at all to a journalist and the lack of protections that seem to be in place, and that's the bigger policy debate. So, so let's talk about where we are in terms of that. The uh, parliament is, hasn't even resumed from the uh, election. Uh, it seems as though there's been plenty of politicking and events since the election. What do you think is likely going to be the effect of these raids on actual parliamentary oversight, for one thing, but also the potential for legislative change uh, to ensure that there are protections not just for the media but, most importantly, for whistleblowers, for people who, in good faith, uh, raise issues about some toxic practice uh, within uh, the, the broader public service and then go on to face enormous jail terms for their good works. It's going to be really interesting to see whether the politicians muscle up on this because it's a real philosophical debate that underpins it before we then get to the practical of protecting whistleblowers. It is a reality that in most political philosophy around democracy and democratisation that you are in some instances allowed to break the law. Now, I know politically, you know, sometimes I think Sally McManus said that once as a union leader and the government jumped all over her for doing so, but you are, in most democratic theory, well and truly allowed to break the law if the law is considered to be unjust in some form. Now, I would argue 
laws that don't protect whistleblowers providing public interest disclosures where that public interest can be proven down the track is therefore an unjust law and a law that if it's not going to be changed, whistleblowers have the right to break it even if, unfortunately, under the law, if uh, politicians don't change things, they will be able to be prosecuted, raided, possibly go to jail because we don't want to live in a society where someone who is inside the bubble, to use Scott Morrison's term, finds out something going on which is of such public interest and concern that were it to go public, change would or should follow. We don't want them to feel that they can't actually serve the nation, even if doing so requires them to violate a principle of confidentiality that they might be required to keep in their employment. Mm. So we could go through a number of cases. I think we probably should. But mm. the there are two things that we've heard a lot from Scott Morrison. One is that no one is above the law. And the other one that is that he's not troubled by police acting to enforce the law. Those were his initial comments when he was in... Uh, in Britain... I've got to say, though, Hugh, do you... I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but that, they're such trite comments. They're trite. I'm sorry, this is more complex than no-one's above the law, duh, and he's got no problem with the law being enforced, duh. Well, what if there's a law that he doesn't like or that he thinks needs to be changed or that is unjust? This is precisely the point, because people <laughs> think that law is something immutable. We still have in, the, in our heads this notion of Charlton Heston coming down from, you know, uh, in Moses, some sort of 1950s MGM big screen event where the law is chiselled never to be changed in rock. <laughs> and yet the reality is, is that if that was the case, you wouldn't bother with parliaments. Parliaments are all about changing laws. They're changing laws all the time. That is so, what they are. They are lawmakers. Lawmakers and law reformers, so every every time Parliament sits, it is making a law that the day before wasn't a law. And then the day after, something might be oh. reformed and it's no longer a law. So this exactly. notion that, that the law is some immutable, unchangeable force and that we're all bound into it, the reason the law changes is because the law is deemed to be inadequate. And, and, the, and the law is only deemed to be inadequate because... Plainly, people have said it is inadequate for these reasons. There are reasons why the law is at any given moment wrong because otherwise we would never change it. We're changing laws all the time. Once upon a time it was illegal to be gay and to practice as a gay man or woman. That's been changed. Uh, You know, there used to be a law, I don't know the thickness, I haven't taken a great interest in this law, you'll be unsurprised to know when I say it, but there used to be a law many years ago that in your home you were allowed to beat your wife with a stick as long as it was no thicker than, I think it was your pinky or something like that. There was a law to that effect. Now, these laws people would be horrified by now, so they've been changed. Now, they're on a different spectrum, but they're not necessarily any less significant, this law that we're discussing around whistleblowers, because the magnitude of what we're talking about as a society, the ability to have people feeling more free to get out information that were the public aware of it, they would demand that their lawmakers changed it and if they weren't prepared to change it, they would get changed as being the elected lawmakers. Boy, we want to support that, don't we? I mean, this isn't about journalists in the fourth estate running around trying to protect oneself. This is about protecting the whistleblowers as much, if not more so, frankly, than the journalists. Absolutely. And this is the thing about it. What we've seen is a creeping mechanism whereby... uh, it can be laws or even just simply regulations around behaviour, particularly for public servants, um, are seen to be somehow to have primacy over the core issue involved. Uh, to, to give one example about something that I know intimately was the Skype scandal back in mm. uh, 2011 when uh, a young woman who was a cadet at the Australian Defence Force Academy 
engaged in a consensual sexual encounter with another cadet. You're not allowed to have sex uh, between cadets, so that was breaking a law. Uh, but the larger event was that he was live streaming yeah, I, I that event you, to other students. And the point about it was is that the initial blame was directed at the young woman because she had had sex uh, and it was perceived that she was more guilty of that than, than the man, regardless of the fact that he had then actually been been doing this this far greater crime of, without her knowledge, transmitting that mm. material to others, but also that she then went public to the media and she never recovered. She was spat out of the defence system for the crime internally of going to the media, whereas what happened ultimately... After the uproar, the police were called back in, charges were laid, they kicked these young men out of the defence force, uh, there were convictions that were achieved and so on, but because she had the courage to come forward. But so far as some hardheads in the defence were, she was in the wrong. The minute she went to the media, she was in the wrong. You then look at the Witness K. Bernard Caleri case mm. where they have revealed the fact that we spied on an impoverished neighbour, East Timor, in order to screw out of them a better deal on where the gas fields would be, potentially the seabed arrangements between Australia and East Timor. They reveal that these guys are facing time in jail. Richard Boyle, the tax official, raised the alarm over appalling practices in the tax office. After he raised the alarm, it was sent off to the ABC Four Corners, everyone went, well, of course that's wrong. The thing has been changed. But for doing that service... On behalf of the Australian people, he faces 160 mm. years it's in jail. Isn't it? We are in the can, wrong place with this. I've got to ask you a question because we see these examples and they're usually bureaucrats, senior or mid-level, that have access through their non-partisan role to information that they have a concern about. They gain nothing by leaking it, let's be clear. But all that they do is they serve a purpose and a public interest purpose by exposing something that they believe is wrong. But they either don't have the power or the wherewithal to be able to do anything about it without that media incursion. What about this? Somebody or people who leak a lot more than these whistleblowers who have a purpose to their leaking, uh, who are nonpartisan, is politicians. Mm. Politicians... Obviously, we're not going to name names. We protect our sources. It is an illegal act to violate Cabinet and to leak from it, yet it happens all the time. And, by the way, we're not talking about the occasional rogue politician. The rogue person is probably the occasional politician who doesn't leak. They all leak, but that's politics. Sometimes it's an organised leak because they want to get the information out to the benefit of the government or or whoever it might be. Sometimes it's an unauthorised leak, an individual trying to benefit by hurting another with what they said or did in Cabinet or make themselves look better for having opposed or proposed something which did or didn't happen. But there's always benefit attached to it, either wider government benefit, both sides of politics do this, or individual benefit either through oneself getting promoted or through damaging a political opponent. Yet, it seems that those crimes, which they technically are, which don't serve a public benefit more often than not, they just serve a private personal benefit or a party political one, those crimes we don't seem to see the police choosing to or wanting to prosecute. They seem to dump those cases. But when a bureaucrat 
has the temerity to actually for a purpose that isn't personal interest or party interest but is actually for the national interest to disclose something, well, what do you know? The authorities come down on them like a ton of bricks. And you know why? Because if they started to come down on the lawmakers, the lawmakers would do what they bloody well should do now to protect the whistleblowers in departments. They would change the law because they couldn't have politicians getting attacked and getting exposed. But our law enforces which I don't think is a good thing, appear at least to me to be enforcing one law when it doesn't apply to police, but not enforcing it when it does. This is the total hypocrisy of, of the, the comment from the Prime Minister that no one is above the law. It except all of their colleagues except in Parliament. Except the politicians. It's, it's completely hypocritical. And anyone who's paying even passing attention realises how, how profoundly, almost comedically, uh, false that statement is. And we saw a bit of an example of it when for all the uh, sturm and drang, for all the, all the excitement of having the media blitzes on the ABC, uh, the police blitzes on the ABC and on Annika Smithers from News Corp, that the uh, investigation into the leak in February of this year that related to an ASIO uh, report uh, finding that the Medivac bill was probably not good policy, which got leaked directly onto the front page of the Australian, mm. which had uh, Peter Dutton, who of course cares so much about the law being enforced that uh, he had no complaints about that. He was megaphoning that across uh, radio the morning immediately afterwards because there was Labor's nose to be bloodied uh, with this report. Um, that investigation gets quietly dropped because there's no prospect of it coming out. And there's actually a slightly larger issue, and that is that, to my mind, the uh, ASIO report saying that the Medivac bill might be bad policy, why should that be a secret? Mm. This is the, goes to another question, which is we've got too many secrets. Oh, yeah. Jim Bowman, who's totally pro-defence, you know, he's an ex-major general, he's a senator, he's a hardliner on defence, etc. He frankly says that the, the whole defence apparatus, the security apparatus, names things as secrets which have got nothing to do with anything other than just to protect the uh, internal it's a, workings. It's almost systems. like a Yes Minister episode. I mean, I remember Sir Humphrey Appleby talking about, you know, using the Official Secrets Act uh, as a wonderful overall cover for anything that you want to avoid having to get media attention. You know, we see so many examples of that satire becoming reality now. But here's a challenge. Hugh, I think whether it's for the Prime Minister or for any other politician who says no one is above the law, let's see these politicians, they won't do this, let's see them all line up, take to a microphone and declare to any journalist whom they may have spoken to when they were out of turn speaking to them, i.e. violating confidential information that they shouldn't have violated in the same way that these whistleblowers aren't supposed to be above the law but they've probably only done it for personal or party political benefit... Let's give them a challenge. Stand up, take to a microphone and say, I release every journalist who I've ever spoken to on background and perhaps therefore violated rules with that disclosure of their required confidentiality to protect their source. I release them all now. I'm so confident that I've never done it. Let's see one politician in Canberra do that. A good challenge, unlikely to be taken up. And just before we move on from that subject, no one is above the law, but we must not forget that according to the Solicitor General of Australia, there remains some risk that uh, Peter Dutton is ineligible to be in Parliament, that's the Solicitor General's advice, because of his constitutional uh, difficulties uh, due to the family childcare businesses that he and his wife run 
so that has never been purged. I spoke to the Prime Minister about it uh, since he's returned from his trip to, to Europe. He says that's all been resolved, but the Solicitor General's advice is quite clear that it is not resolved, that it can only be resolved by the High Court. It's not being referred to the High Court. It's frustrating, isn't it, though? You know, they, they, they can just say, I mean, this is this is the problem with, with politics. What do you do? And the process, I suppose, around it, because you know, maybe the High Court would rule in Peter Dutton's favour. I, I think it, it probably would. I think the it probably Solicitor would General too. thinks it probably I'm, would, but there is a risk that they wouldn't. I'm no great lawmaker, but I think it probably would too, and yeah. that's what the advice seems to suggest. But there is enough grey that for a Prime Minister, when asked about something as significant, when we saw them drop like flies around Section 44 in various other ways around citizenship, there is enough grey that to just rhetorically dismiss it, that's been dealt with. No, it has not. And the key thing is, it's not just anyone. This is the person at the top of the most powerful collection of national security and law enforcement agencies Australia has ever seen. And as long as there is a cloud over his eligibility to be in Parliament and therefore be the Minister, you would think anyone seriously would be trying to resolve it. We're going to take a quick break before we get ourselves overheated here. (laughs) There's a lot to talk about, PVO. We'll be back in just a second. There's this incredible place where dreams are made. This is MasterChef. MasterChef. This this is going to be the best, the best year yet. This is insane. On 10. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. I've had a little glass of cool water. I've calmed down a little bit, Uh, PVO. There is other business going on. We're about to see the new parliament. The 46th parliament, if I've done my counting right, is about to be re-established, of course, with Anthony Albanese on one side of the room and a re-empowered Scott Morrison on the other side. Tax cuts are going to be a pretty close to number one order of business. What's going to happen? You want my prediction, so you can assume that the opposite will happen. Uh, look, I, I tend to... <laughs> I, it, look, it, who knows what will happen, but it's all about, obviously, those deals with the crossbench in the in the Senate at one level. At another level, it's possible that Labor shifts or that the government shifts, you know, because obviously Labor is saying we'll pass tranches one and two but not tranche three, which is the higher income tax. So, so let's remind ourselves of the tax cuts mm. that are on the table that were kicked up at the last budget, uh, the reform, which stretch out years into the future. So there's an initial uh, tax cut uh, aimed at low and middle income. Yep, uh, and it earners. arrives sooner. It should arrive sooner. Uh, and Labor has said that it completely supports that. Yep, then there's a mid-tier one, if we could call it that. Yep. Um, but that's a little bit further out, but it also goes further up the income spectrum. And then the last stage three, which is the one that Labor has a fundamental problem with, is the one that they regard as flattening the tax far too much. I think it creates one tax bracket of 30 cents in the dollar from 45,000 all the way up to 200,000, I think is the number of the final one. Don't hold me to that. I don't think it's 45, but, but I, it think, might it's, be a little I higher, think it's the next it, one up. Yeah. It's, it's very wide-ranging, and their argument is that that's a, a virtual flat tax. It goes against the whole principle of... Well, the key thing about it, as you pointed out to me on budget night when we were sitting there in the lockout, is that if you look at this full range of the tax cuts which are being proposed by Josh Frydenberg in the budget, which is now as part of one piece of legislation that can't be split up according to the government, at the end of it, obviously, where you get tax cuts, people on the higher end of the scale are going to get in dollar terms larger of course, tax because they pay more tax. Yeah, 2%, yep. 2% of $100,000 is more than 2% of $40,000. But what is significant is that it's not just in dollar terms but mm. in proportional terms. Which is unusual, which is unusual. Normally you have this rhetorical debate where, you know, tr- traditionally you'll have Labor saying, 
you're giving too much money in tax cuts to the wealthy and you've got the Liberals trying to say, well, actually, that's because they pay a lot more tax. Proportionally, people on lower incomes are getting a better tax cut. It's just less dollars because they pay so much less tax. That's usually what happens. And that's right. On this tranche, which is why I think Labor will probably dig in, uh, it's different because even proportionally the high-income earners are going to get a bigger tax cut. Uh, as a proportion of their income, they're getting a bigger tax cut than the low-income earners are as a proportion of their income. And that's unusual and that's why Labor has a profound problem with it. But the politics is interesting too, though, Hugh, because do they therefore stick to their guns and oppose it uh, and then let the government rip them apart for therefore not delivering tranches one and two? That's an interesting debate. You know, do people look at it simplistically and say, well, Labor's blocked tax cuts, so boo to you? Or do they take a more complex look at it and say, well, hang on, they did want to give tranches one and two and maybe we don't think that tranche three is an appropriate tax cut. Who knows? Paul Kidding used to say that good policy is good politics. And there is certainly an argument, if Labor has the means to make it, that to uh, lock in a tax cut as large as the third tranche, which is being proposed by the Josh Frydenberg uh, legislation, lock it in for it doesn't begin till 2024, 25. So it's after the next election. It's outside the cycle. It's outside the forward estimates. Mm. It will take a big chunk out of um, revenues to the government. Arguably, it was being put up by the Treasurer at a time when they weren't seriously expecting to win the election. So it was a bit like when um, Gillard was putting together her last budget um, with Wayne Swan, knowing that they were not going to win yeah. the election in 2013. So they backloaded all these things on Gonski education funding, on the NDIS, knowing that they weren't going to have to pay for it. Yeah, this was a booby trap. It for was an a booby trap Labor for the government. future. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's right. It was a political trap. Well, no, now it's there. But there is an argument that I would say is a one worth making that why should you, in the national interest, lock in a tax cut that is still years away well, when we don't know what the global economy is doing? Or our economy is doing. I've got a counter view to that. I, I don't agree with the structure of these tax cuts because I do think because of their disproportionality that they're too great for high-income earners rather than low-income earners. But I've got no problem with locking in tax cuts, but I would do it very differently. Some nations around the world do this. We don't. I don't think we ever have. Everyone likes, as politicians, to talk about bracket creep and just how much that erodes productivity and it erodes people's pay packets by stealth and it, it, it fills government coffers by stealth and it almost becomes this way that governments manage to sort out deficits and debt without actually really doing anything. You wait long enough and inflation inflates via bracket creep for the income tax structure, people paying more and more tax because by definition they earn more, even if it's low wages growth environment, they earn more and hence, you know, bracket creep gets them over time. Some nations actually link their tax brackets to their wages or inflation figures, which means that basically you never get bracket creep. It does hurt economies potentially because it means that you can't just artificially sort out your economy by bracket creep saving the day, but that's not a bad thing in my view because it forces politicians to reform uh, and to, you know, watch spending patterns and to not spend too much because they, they, they can't rely on bracket creep as the way that they get all this extra revenue. It's a pretty good thing. It's good for the citizens. It's good for workers because you know what you pay now in tax 
relative to the economy and to the cost of living with prices and all the rest of it stays the same. Whereas if you don't do it, you end up with these artificial debates almost around tax cuts, which is that they do nothing for five or six years. They fill their coffers with bracket creep while we all get sort of, if you like, a bit screwed out of it. Let me put it that way. Yet then suddenly they try to tell us that they're a great government because they're offering tax cuts. Well, no, you're not. You've waited five years and you let us all get hammered by bracket creep and now you're just trying to get some of it back via tax cuts and get political credit for that. A lot of countries do that. It's, it's, it's good policy, but it's probably not good politics. Uh, in no, and, and, and the other difficulty with it to, to a certain degree is, is the it would work if we didn't have an ageing population. So if you're going to look at, if, if bracket creep has been taken out of the equation because you've essentially structured your tax to go up with wages growth or inflation, however you want to mm. peg it, then uh, that's fine. But we have a structural difficulty in the Australian but then, population. But don't you agree that, I, I, I agree that's a huge political problem that you, you put, you address bracket creep, but then as society ages and fewer people are of working age, then you've got a problem, right? Yeah, because so much, so much of the money goes on that. So, so that then if you're going to say, well, the government's got to save money in various different ways, you, you save money most easily in areas where there's a lot being spent. But and those areas are actually in areas like the pension and also uh, Medicare health protections. But don't you think it would be good? I, I think those are all incredibly valid points. But I guess what I, I would still want to do it because it would then require the politicians to then have the debate rather than just let bracket creep become the way that they address the challenges fiscally of ageing, um, they would have to sit there and say, look, here are the challenges of ageing. How do we tax more to deal with that? Do we want to, you know, put another tax bracket in for income tax or do we want to do this as another indirect tax? It might actually bring about more GST-style debate, which is actually a more effective tax, most economists will tell you. It forces them to have that debate, whereas it's almost like the lazy man's way to get around all the challenges of things like ageing and other fiscal challenges is just to let bracket creep do the heavy lifting. It's tough for income earners. That goes to the question of can we have intelligent, mature debate? Has the time gone? It's been a long time since I've seen a <laughs> really good... Policy debate. Yeah, we, we should be running the country, PVO. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's oh, a yes. challenge that we don't want to take. Australia? Never mind. <laughs> We're here to help. Um, I'm wondering when the last time was when we had a really good, intelligent uh, policy debate in this country on a matter of national interest. We've had a lot of debate on climate change and energy policy. Uh, arguably, it's not been that mature as a debate. Yeah, I don't know, actually. As you're saying that, I'm trying to think of... GST, perhaps, way back when Howard was trying to get it through. That was an extended month-after-month debate about what it might mean and how to fix it It was almost up. OK, that one, because, I mean, this probably is why Labor didn't win that GST election in 98 as opposed to Labor winning the 93 GST election against John Hewson. They won the politics in 93 with incredibly brutal adverts from Paul Keating and the government. Ironically, of course, he previously supported a consumption tax in the 80s, but put that to one side. The campaign was brutal and they won. Uh, in 98, Labor's campaign wasn't that brutal uh, and it was more of a discussion, them arguing why it's bad versus um, John Howard having a genuine argument about why it's good with all the other indirect taxes that get fixed, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that wasn't a bad debate, um, I guess, for, for a political debate. It's a long time. It was before social media became yeah, a force, yeah. so may, maybe it can happen, maybe it can't. Uh, in the time left to us, uh, Anthony Albanese has now secured his position as the leader of the Labor Party. He has a very tough job ahead of him over the next three years. Uh, he's done two things. He's gone on his listening tours. Uh, you caught up with him in Western Australia, plenty a weak spot. He's gone off to Queensland to sort of basically bend the knee before Queensland and say, we stuffed up. Uh, all good and sound stuff. 
he has his first test, uh, in a sense, on a pure labour matter, and that is the behaviour of John Setka, mm. uh, the construction union boss who made unwise comments, I'll leave it at that, on Rosie Batty. What are we seeing? What's your sense of how Albo uh, is doing so far meeting mm. the challenges of taking on ScoMo? Well, I think at the moment he's playing the long game. So he's not necessarily trying to position himself to be in front early with short-term wins and therefore almost in a sense that was... Bill Shorten did that quite successfully until it became unsuccessful <laughs> at the very end. Uh, I think Anthony Albanese is try- trying to time his run, whether he does or not, of course, is a whole other matter, but he's thinking longer term. And so I think that's what is relevant to his listening tour. That's what is relevant to where he does or doesn't ultimately position on tax, which we were talking about before. And I think that's also relevant uh, to John Setka and the CFMEU because we should say this, Bill Shorten always enjoyed the patronage of the CFMEU in his leadership and in some of his policy positionings. They gave him a really hard time over Adani, so that was an exception to that rule. But through most of his time they were, if you like, supportive of him. They were part of his power base. Uh, Anthony Albanese and the CFMEU have never seen eye to eye and specifically certainly with John Setka as well. So quite apart from, you know, his indiscretions or alleged indiscretions, the union leader, there is there has long been a bubbling tension and issue between the CFMEU and... Anthony Albanese. So it doesn't surprise me that he would come in as hard as he has when he sees the opportunity to do so. I'm not suggesting he's been opportunistic, but certainly he he, he, he doesn't like the militant union and some of the way that it functions and, and twists one's arm, which is what it did to, as a union, it's what it did to Bill Shorten and, and Bill Shorten knowingly entered that relationship. So Albo's going to do things differently on that front. We'll see where he ultimately lands over time, though. There's the the one personal issue between him and John Setka and he's absolutely laid down his position on that and he won't be for turning, in my view. We'll see what happens. But more broadly, I actually think that he will take on sections of the union movement, but he's not anti-trade union, far from it. You know? well, will they punish him for that? They well, have that, great factional power. They might. They might. I mean, there's it's a real tension there, um, but we'll see. You know, uh, this is part of what I think oppositions have to do, and in Labor's case, it's with the trade unions. In the Liberals' case, it's it's work out between the factions and, and its philosophical positioning and what it fights for and what it doesn't when they're in opposition. It's actually a good thing to do, but it's not necessarily, certainly in the short and medium term, it can leave you a bit politically exposed. Albo will be hoping that the rules that protect the leader will give him a bit more authority to be able to do this even if he gets taken on. So on just that other matter, he went to Queensland as well he should. Queensland mm. uh, turned its face away from the Labor Party in a profound and historic way at the election just gone. To go on a listening tour and to, and to weep and gnash essentially and say oh, we did wrong... Um, does it have any effect with ordinary punters? Is it? Oh, I don't know that it has much effect. I mean, look, it's a bit of a gimmick, you know. I mean, I was being critical of Scott Morrison over his rhetoric around no one's above the law. I think that's, you know, very blah. But equally, these listening tours are a little bit blah as well. Uh, Bill Shorten did one after 2016. You know, I think he went on a 10-day listening tour trying to make the point that we got close, we didn't quite get there, but, you know, I'm in touch with the people. It's, it's about optics as much as actually opening your ear to what you get told. But, hey... You know, that's politics, I guess. Mm. And soon he'll be in the firestorm and 
and those chances for listening to us will uh, go down a little bit. Better than not listening, I guess. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's true. So, PVO, you're off for a, a for a well-earned little break for a couple of weeks. Yep. So the professor part of the professor and the hack will be an empty chair, but it won't entirely be empty because uh, uh, you might be um, essential but you're not irreplaceable, Peter, and I just want you to know that. I've got to find well, a professor say, from somewhere. Don't get too comfortable uh, with, <laughs> with whoever you end up speaking to week in, week out, but we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. And one thing about it is it's hard to find a professor. It's never hard to find a hack. So right. um, th- that will come. My turn will come soon enough. PVO, great to talk to you as always, and thank you for listening. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. It's the baffling case that gripped the nation. What happened to three year old William Tyrrell? For close to five years, the family of William Tyrrell have looked for answers. Where is their son, who was playing in the yard of his grandmother's home one minute and gone the next? Police emergency, this is Simone. Yeah, hi, my son is missing. He's three and a half. William was likely abducted, but by who? How has the perpetrator avoided discovery? I'm 10 News First's Leah Harris, and in this podcast, we will strive to answer the question that has haunted his family. Where's William Tyrrell? Having a child go missing must be one of the most painful heartaches imaginable for a parent. The little boy's foster mum, who was visiting the town with William, had noticed two cars parked across the road. Someone out there knows something. Something they've kept hidden all this time. Where's William Tyrrell? A 10 Speaks podcast coming soon.